Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Noted American author and essayist Cynthia Baldwin once wrote, Words are how we think. Stories are how we link. Now take a moment and consider that statement and you will recognize that Baldwin astutely notes that as people, we are very particular about the narratives we craft. After all, our social, political, and even religious positions are imbued by the tales in which we participate and the narratives we create. In my home, one such narrative has to do with the holidays. And before Micah was born, Linda and I spent countless hours debating on the merits of Santa Claus. Now, I'm a bit of a romantic, so I consider the idea of a man breaking into your house in the middle of the night, eating your food while watching you sleep, a bit cute. My wife is a bit more of a pragmatist. First off, she thought that idea was creepy. And furthermore, she reasoned that as parents, we sacrifice so much for our children that if any credit is going to be doled out for gifts received, it should belong to us. And so back and forth we went, arguing, debating, sometimes even fighting, until one morning I approached her and I said, Linda, the world is populated by so much pain and privation. Don't you think we need to invest ourselves in the art of infusing a little more hope in the world? Without thinking about it, she assented. And at that moment, we both immersed ourselves in the task of creating a narrative. Last year, I went as far as to sprinkle baby powder all over my living room. I stepped on it and created a beautiful path of footprints that would lead from the chimney to the tree to the kitchen to my son's bedroom and back to the chimney. When morning broke on the next day, I raced into his room and said, he came, he came. Excited, my boy ran out of the room, raced me to the living room, stepped in front of it, and this is what he saw. He looked at it, scratched his head, looked back at me, and asked, Daddy, is, is that snow? <laughs> Without thinking much, I said, absolutely it's snow. Really? 
Well, it smells really good. <laughs> kind of like you, Dad. Plus, there's no snow in Loma Linda. He's a smart boy. Immediately, I moved and answered, kind of dismissing his question by saying, but, but Santa lives in the North Pole, and there's a lot of snow in the peaks of the mountains around Loma Linda. Maybe that's where the snow came from. He looked back down at that mess, looked up with a quizzical expression on his face, scratched his head once more, and said, Oh, Dad, why is Santa Claus barefoot? <laughs> Told you he was a smart boy. And at that moment, I did what any of us do when one of our narratives is threatened. I disengaged. Strikes me as interesting this morning that we live in a time where virulent and vitriolic language has hijacked our discourse and created a narrative of disengagement and division. And amidst all of that, the church has been called to recount the story of God's amazing grace. But in order to be faithful to that task, we must first begin by asking the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this man? So this morning, we look at the witness of Scripture as found in the Gospel according to Matthew in order to attempt and glean some answers to that, the most pressing question in all of Christian existence. But before we open the word, will you pray with me? God who was, who is, and who will be. We pray that in the midst of these divisive times, you remain the tie that binds. For we pray in your name. And all the people of God said, Amen. Matthew begins his narrative by reaching back into the collective history of Israel. He chooses a bleak passage found in the book of Jeremiah, the 31st chapter. A voice was heard in Ramah, Weeping and great mourning, Rachel wailing for her, for her children. She refuses to be comforted, for they are no more. This is the passage that Matthew uses to escort the announcement of the Messiah. And it is almost as if the gospel writer is attempting to tell us that even in the light of the incarnation, everything is not well with our world. He moves on amidst this backdrop that juxtaposes wailing and worship in order to craft and connect us to a story that links back all the way to Israel's primeval history. The eighth chapter of the gospel presents a subtle yet significant connection between Jesus 
and Moses. Just as the old patriarch descended from Mount Sinai, carrying the tablets of the law, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus will come down from the mount, no longer carrying tablets, for he is the very enfleshment of Torah. Sure, people will follow him, but only because they have failed to grasp that just as those tablets were broken at the foot of Mount Sinai, Jesus too must be broken at the foot of Golgotha. Matthew continues his account by creating three miracle stories, three tales of healing. The first one is contained in a conversation between, between Christ and a leper. Scripture reads as follows, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. For thousands of years, the voices of powerless people have been ignored and suppressed by historiography. Their cries are silent in the realm of history, but not in the pages of the gospel. For Matthew remembers a leper and a woman, a long-dead matriarch who weeps bitterly for her children. His message is pregnant with the deafening sounds of people who continue to be abused and violated. And so you have this leper opening his mouth and saying, Jesus, if you want to, you can make me whole again. Can you see it? Do you hear it? The subtle hints of a narrative of disappointment, it's almost as if the leper is saying, look, man, a lot of people had, have tried to help me before. None of them really succeeded. None of them really was invested. None of them really wanted to. But you, you, son of David, represent my last chance for a transformed life. And almost immediately, Jesus reaches out and touches him. Now, I want that to wash over you for a moment. This is probably the first time that anyone has touched this man since he contracted leprosy. And that is why I find the commandment that Jesus will prescribe in verse 4 so puzzling. You see, Jesus says, go show yourself to the priests. What motivates this order? Could it be that Jesus is interested in fulfilling all the requirements of Levitical law? Well, hardly. If that was his intent, then Jesus must also appear before a rabbi in order to be declared clean because by touching the leper, he has become unclean. So that can't be the motivating factor. Could it be 
that Jesus is calling this leper to appear before the religious authorities because he understands that salvation is not only about dealing with the sin problem. For Jesus, salvation also must incorporate the reintegration of people into the societies that have dismissed them. In one fell swoop, Jesus has reinstated this man into the ceremonial, social, and even political life of Israel. He has not called them to follow his entourage, but rather, Jesus is ordering this leper to go out and experience the fruits of God's scandalous grace in the rhythms of everyday life. And as the leper turns, healed, restored, and reintegrated, Rachel is comforted. Next, Jesus will encounter a centurion, the tough and difficult soldiers of the Roman Empire those with whom the people of God had many interactions. He approaches Jesus and heartbroken says, my son, my son is at home, paralyzed and in great pain. Again, almost immediately, Jesus answers, I will go. I don't care how other Jewish religious healers might respond to your request, but I will go. You just have to call on my name, and I'll come running. You have a friend in me. And just like that, he opens his mouth in order to utter those life-giving and life-affirming words. Again, I'd like you to pause for a moment and consider the fact that there is power in the word of Jesus. The famous German scholar Gerhard Abeling in his lectures to the faculty at the University of Zurich, would always ask the question, what was it about Luther's reform that contrary to any other reforms became a reformation of deeds and not just words? Abeling would let that question linger in the air, heavy and sticky. And then he would offer a provocative answer, Luther's Reformation became a reformation of deeds and not just words because Luther trusted only in the word and not at all in any of the deeds. Jesus again will speak to the centurion and say, nowhere in Israel have I found faith like this man's. Isn't that how Jesus works? I mean, picture it. 
The centurion comes looking for healing, and he finds heaven. Again, it's because Jesus recognizes that salvation has to do with reintegration. And as the centurion turns around to walk back home and encounter his son made whole, Rachel is comforted. Next, Jesus will go to Capernaum, and there he'll find Peter's mother-in-law. Now, Jewish custom forbids a man to touch another woman's arm. But in case you haven't gotten it yet, Jesus has no patience for laws that create narratives that divide. And so he gently grazes the arm of the woman. Immediately she is restored and begins to serve him. Now this might sound strange for our modern day sensibilities, but rabbinic law also forbade a woman from serving, lest they become too accustomed to being around men. I find it interesting that these three miracles represent a sort of progression that is centered and revolves around the Jewish temple system. First, you have the leper, the archetype of the outsider. And if he were to attempt to ascend to the temple mound, he would have been turned back. You're an outsider. Then you would have had the centurion who on his trek to the temple mound would have passed the leopard. The gates would have opened. He would have walked in, but he would have had to stop at the court of the Gentiles. The woman would follow, traversing both the leper and Roman soldier the gates would have once again swung open, but he, she would have had to stop at the court of the women. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is creating a kingdom devoid of walls. And so, as the constitution of this new established Christian nation demands, Christ will have no concern for your social, ethnic, or gender differences. All are welcome. And Rachel is once again comforted. So he leaves Capernaum and gets into a boat. The sea begins to rock, gently at first. The Messiah falls fast asleep. The reason why he can sleep is because Rachel's tears have now been supplanted by laughter. Laughter. 
Oh, but the disciples are having a different type of experience. Thrashed about like driftwood in the middle of the sea, they are afraid. And they move to Jesus and say, Lord, help us, we are about to be destroyed. Jesus will wake up, look at them, and classify them as people of little faith. You who possess a faith that wilts in the midst of any crises, haven't you understood that what Christ commands is confidence? Confidence to be injected into every sphere of existence. Well, I get seasick too. I don't particularly like storms. What should the disciples of disciples have done? It seems that by berating them, Jesus is telling them what you should have done was to calmly go into the boat and sleep with me. Rachel is comforted. She is comforted because in the presence of Christ, chaos is transformed into cosmos. But Matthew's not done with the story yet. He will draw yet one more analogy. Gethsemane. In that garden, when the forces of chaos have been mustered up in order to threaten the very kingdom that Jesus has come to establish, the disciples will sleep while Jesus is awake. They will sleep because they have been seduced by the fantasies and dreams that seek to mitigate the reality of Jesus' agony. But the God that you and I serve, he cannot sleep. Because at that moment, he becomes one with that long-dead matriarch who continues to cry for the destruction of the vulnerable. The great German theologian Karl Barth once wrote, God's being is in becoming. If Bart is right, then what is happening at Gethsemane is Jesus is being transformed. He is becoming Rachel. He is becoming leper, centurion, and woman in order to save you. I still hear Rachel weeping. She cries from the ovens in Dachau, from the cities in Rwanda, from the killing fields of Kosovo and the scorched earth in Syria from the inner cities of Chicago, Illinois, and Flint, Michigan, to the economically depressed rural communities in the Midwest. She mourns for the uninsured and the underinsured that we have decided are somehow expendable. 
for the immigrant that we treat as less than human, for the woman who continues to be objectified and abused even in the midst of our society, Rachel continues to weep. These aren't political issues. This is the very heartbeat of the gospel. Friends, the only hope that we have for our future is if we stop following an elephant or a donkey and we start following the blood-stained lamb, he is the only one who can truly make this world great again. And we can do it. I've seen it happen. Rachel wept in Loma Linda this week. She came alone, quietly, walked up to a blank board, tentatively picked up a marker, opened it, and began to write. This is what Rachel wrote. I had an abortion this week. It's killing me inside. I feel I've made the biggest mistake of my life. I have two kids. And I just felt, oh, I couldn't feel so bad. Please, please pray for me. I feel I can never forgive myself. And this community, you and I responded to this Rachel by resisting the temptation to post a long excursus on Roe versus Wade, or by pontificating on women's reproductive rights, or by demonizing a woman's right to choose. Instead, we chose to comfort. We said, we love you. God forgives you. You belong here. And if that can become our default position, if it can be entrenched in our ecclesiology, then maybe next time we are tasked with answering the question, Jesus is, we can say, he is awake. Always ready to comfort. Prepared to join Rachel as she weeps. Because after all, the God that you and I serve is the king of the world. May God grant you peace.